Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane, And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be talking with Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt. Dr. Eberstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute, where he researches and writes extensively on demographics, economic development, poverty, and social well-being. He has served as a consultant and advisor for the U.S. government on a variety of projects, and he is author of Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. Nick wrote an excellent essay for us on that theme in our winter 2020 issue. It's titled Education and Men Without Work. In his piece, Dr. Eberset argues that a lack of education and training alone cannot explain the ongoing decline of work for men in modern America. A version of his essay will also be included in How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools, which will be published in February. Dr. Eberstadt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So just to start off, right at the beginning of your essay, Nick, that America today is in the grip of a gradually building crisis, the collapse of work for adult men. You also say this crisis is not an unemployment crisis like it was maybe in the Great Depression. This one is different. It's a crisis in which men have left the workforce entirely and they may never come back. Could you talk to us more about the nature and the history of this crisis we're dealing with today? Sure. It's been gradually gathering for over half a century. If you look at the measure of employment to population ratios, we call the work rate. The work rate for prime age guys, and that's a term of art I didn't invent. It's the Bureau of Labor Statistics formulation for men 25 to 54 years of age. Right. It has been gradually ratcheting down since, let's say, the mid-1960s, along with the business cycle, but pointed in a downward direction. So the very most recent monthly job report shows that the work rate for prime age guys in the civilian non-institutional population, and all of those words matter like <laughs> Bill Clinton's you know, legal deposition, <laughs> pay attention to all of those words. Right. But that work rate is almost as high in the most recent jobs report as it was for U.S. guys in 1939. Hmm as reported in the 1940 population census. So we're almost up to Great Depression 1939 work rates for prime age guys. It doesn't look any better if you broaden the group for, let's say, the 20 to 64 group. It's also a little bit lower than it was in 1939, according to the 1940 census. But of course, as you indicated, the big difference is the composition of the men who are not employed. Back in the Depression era, if you weren't in a job, you were almost surely looking for one. We've got a completely different situation today. For every guy of prime working age who is looking for a job but out of work, and that's the classic definition of unemployment. There were four guys who were neither working nor looking for work. Mm -hmm. Not in labor force, MILF, inactive population, whichever of those phrases <laughs> you wish to use. 
what we've seen over the last two generations is an explosive growth of this third category that really didn't exist before World War II in the U.S. labor force. And it is the massive, gradual, seemingly inexorable growth of this group that has exited from the workforce altogether that arithmetically explains why our work rates for adult men are so low today. Just for the sake of our listeners, I want to throw out some of the numbers you used in the piece because I think they're actually pretty shocking. So we're, we're looking at nearly 7 million civilian non-institutionalized men between the ages of 25 and 54 who are neither working nor looking for work. That's a growth from 1965 when it was at 3.3% to 11.7% in 2015. And having sort of thrown out those statistics, I want to begin our conversation with a question that I think is as important as it may be a little strange sounding. So while most of us certainly in this room are bound to see those statistics and be shocked and a little bit horrified, it's not at all difficult for me to imagine a politician or an economist or a Silicon Valley CEO pushing back in the following way. He might say, well, yes, fewer and fewer men are working, but the American economy over that time has grown. And as long as the American economy is growing and we can guarantee that non-working men receive some sufficient slice of the ever-expanding economic pie, probably through government entitlements, then there's really nothing to worry about. So I guess the question really is, like, what's, what would be wrong with that analysis? Why does the data you muster represent a serious crisis to you? Well, I suppose there's a macro answer and a micro answer. If we look at the big picture, you know, kind of Google Earth 30,000 miles out, our economy has been fantastically effective at generating wealth. That's not our problem. We now have broken the 100 trillion with a T dollar private wealth barrier for the U.S. economy. So that part seems to be going fine. However, as per Larry Summers' discussion of the secular stagnation hypothesis, and as per Professor David Gordon's discussion of technology and constraints on the economy, the new normal for the U.S. macro economy is growth that is a lot slower than any time since the Great Depression. Strangely enough, part of that may have to do with the missing ingredients that we were just discussing, may have to. That's at the macro level. Economically, the big increase in wealth at the same time that we have less work for workers may have political reverberations that we've been witnessing in recent years in populist earthquakes. Sure. Or it may not, I'm, but you can certainly wonder about that. When you get down to the micro level, there's the question of, well, what's wrong with leisure? What's wrong with more free time for people? Isn't free time a luxury? It's a big deal. And yes, certainly free time is a luxury. It's a very oddly distributed luxury in the modern American workforce, however. I mean, we go back to John Maynard Keynes in 1930 and the economic possibilities for our grandchildren. They said, yeah, the future is going to be a lot richer and people aren't going to have to work as much and they've got to figure out what they're going to be doing with all of their 
every time. So we did it. <laughs> Except that we, we didn't distribute it the way that Keynes might have imagined. Right. We've got people in the workforce in the U.S. on average who's, if you're working, your working hours are way longer than in other affluent societies. If you're in the top decile of the income spectrum, you're working dramatically longer. You've got way less free time than other people in U.S. society. And then you've got this group of men who seemingly have nothing but free time. If those men were not disproportionately dying of deaths of despair, you might say, what is the problem? But we also see that Houston, we have a problem here. <laughs> right. And it's even indicated in our you know, mortality statistics. But we can, we can talk later about you know, what it seems, uh, seems that these men without work are doing with their free time, which I think also raises some you know, questions and concerns uh, for citizenship. But remember as well, these men are not entirely biologically disconnected atoms in the ether. Their children, their fathers, right. their brothers, their husbands, and what happens with them matters not just to us as a society, but to a lot of other people closer to them. So let's talk a bit more about maybe what is causing this problem. You write in your piece that the conventional wisdom, it's a demand-driven problem in the sense that these men lack the education, the skills necessary to fulfill uh, the demand for jobs that we have today in a kind of a global economy. But you say education can't really explain all the aspects of the crisis. Can you talk a bit more about sure. that? I am not now, nor have I ever been a labor economist, so I can't speak for the guild. But <laughs> I did try to read what experts in this area were saying. And I think it would be fair to describe the received wisdom, the consensus within this literature as arguing that the decline in work rates for men in America is primarily driven by structural economic change and by technical transformations in the economy, which have disproportionately reduced the demand for less skilled work. It's kind of commonsensical. <laughs> it kind of tracks with uh, a lot of things I think we know from our own senses and experience. Sure. And it certainly also tracks with the disproportionate drop in work rates for guys who are high school dropouts or for guys who have no more than a high school diploma. Work rates and labor force participation rates for men with college degrees or with graduate training have been much less affected over the last 50 years, much less affected. So far, so good. But I think if you take a look at What's actually unfolded in the United States over the last half century or more, we might call the demand-driven thesis, the idea that this is really kind of like an absence of demand for particular types of labor or demand shock right. that people haven't recovered from. I don't think we can say, if we look at it a little bit more closely, that that explains the whole situation or even most of the situation. Mm. I mean, I can give you some examples. If you take a look 
at the inactivity rate, the or the NILF rate, the percentage of prime age guys who are neither working nor looking for work. And you'll have to trust me on this, but I'll tell you what a chart would show you. We'll believe you. Okay, exactly. <laughs> You're the expert. Suspend, suspend reading to the blind, yeah, suspend <laughs> disbelief. Okay, so if you saw a chart, you would see something which looks not quite like a straight line, but pretty close to a straight line <laughs> heading upward from the mid-1960s to today. Right. And it's a remarkably consistent upward trajectory. You can't see where the Great Recession is. You can't see where the other recessions over this period of time mm -hmm. are. You can't see where China entered the World Trade Organization. You can't see when the iPhone came in, you know, into common use or any other disruptive technologies, which is to say, this does not look like a demand shock. Mm -hmm. And you can't even track particular demand shocks in there. It's an almost straight upward arrow. Mm -hmm. And that's not what a demand side problem looks like. Or to give you another example, if you were to take a look at a chart of these by states across the U.S., lowest to highest, of the places that have the lowest and the highest inactivity rates for prime age guys, you'd see that there were a lot of places that are pretty badly off, like West Virginia, sure. that are contiguous with states that are much less badly off, like Maryland or, and Virginia, or Maine and New Hampshire as another appeared. So, I mean, which raises the question, okay, so where are the U-Hauls, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I was taught economics a very long time ago, shortly after the Stone Age. <laughs> but in those days, they used to tell us that after a shock, markets would seek equilibrium. If you look at the differentials between states, from at least 1980 to the present, they have been growing more disparate. There's nothing like uh, <laughs> a, a seeking of equilibrium that's apparent there. So that's another problem with the demand side theory. I'll just mention one other, which I think is a, a very important one. If skills were the constraint on workforce participation, if, if lack of education and skills imparted by schooling were a determinative constraint, you would not expect to see the sorts of heterogeneity in labor force participation that you see for prime age men without high school degrees today. And if you break that grouping down into subsets or smaller components, you'll find, for example, that foreign-born guys who are married but are high school dropouts have a workforce participation rate that is really high. In fact, it is indistinguishable from college grads. That's interesting, yeah. If you look, on the other hand, at native-born guys who've never gotten married, it's a disaster. Uh, it's a workforce participation rate of 
barely over 50 percent. Mm. There is about a 40 percentage point gap between high school dropout guys, depending on whether they're married and foreign-born or native-born and never married. Right. So I don't know what sort of intellectual acrobatics one is prepared to engage in, but you have to be pretty Olympic quality to say <laughs> that there is something determinative about educational background and skills that can account for this sort of disparity in this single educational category. Now, now we know that there may be a assortive questions that maybe people who have poor health are less likely to get married. And obviously, there are motivational questions. If you move to a new country, you may be more motivated than other people. So there, there is some selection and assortive uh, questions there. But a 40 plus right. percentage point gap, that's kind of hard to explain as a demand side problem. Right. So I guess that sort of begs the question for me, and it's not something that is really explored the piece, but why was this the consensus opinion for as long as it was? The way you present the data makes, like you've just sort of been saying, makes it absurd to suggest that the demand side explanation is the explanation. So who was putting that forward? Why was everyone believing it? And at what point did you begin to start asking yourself if that was the actual explanation for what we were seeing. Well, as I say, I am not now, nor have I ever been, a labor economist. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of people who say, would say I'm not an economist at all. Oh, but, but so, but leave that, leave that aside. Leave that aside. <laughs> Throughout, I would say, until practically yesterday, it would be unexceptional and unexceptionable to argue that la that work rates were a function of the demand for labor rather than necessarily the supply for labor, that it was a dominantly a demand side function. Partly people were an awful lot poorer than they are today. Opting out of the workforce wasn't an option at all, especially if one had a family to support or dependents to look after. The depression was clearly a demand side problem and that was what I think has focused modern U.S. employment policy I mean, from sure. the, the Humphrey-Hawkins Act and what, 46 on, trying to have a full employment economy. The idea behind the concept of the full employment economy was a demand level that would be consonant with full employment. Sure. So, you know, that kind of historical framing of the phenomenon, I think, is entirely reasonable. It's just that we have entered into a new situation where supply-side constraints are possible and where I think we also have some institutional barriers to working that didn't previously exist. So part of this is a question of, let's say, maybe being open to the possibility that new information may show the reality to be slightly different from the way that one was trained to think about a problem, maybe something like that. Right. So we're dealing with the legacy of a paradigm that was inherited from a Great Depression era where this was 
the demand side was really the question, and that just no longer is the case. Well, where it was the where it was the absolutely determinative, overwhelming sure. description yeah. of the problem. I mean, certainly there's still a demand side problem here. Um, it's just that, as I've described, there are other dynamics as well. If you only talk about the demand side now, you're missing an awful lot, maybe even most of the problem. So let's talk about some of those supply side effects that you mentioned in your piece. The first one being the marriage effect. You've already touched on that, but obviously uh, rates of marriage, uh, living with children, that, those have both gone down significantly mm-hmm. for prime age men. How important is that to this, this crisis? I don't think it's a news flash to say that this is a rather controversial area to wade into. Yeah. It's very sensitive in many quarters, and it's considered to be, uh, I suppose one would say, in poor taste to discuss the correspondence between family structure and labor force participation. One of the reasons for this is because it's a very complex relationship. And the causation arrows, I think, point in both directions here. It's very, it is, it is easy to make an association between family structure and work rates or labor force participation for guys, but it's very difficult to tease out the actual causation here. What we know is that over the last two generations and increasingly over the last two generations, Employment patterns for guys have been differentiated according to uh, family type. If all other things being equal, and by that I mean holding ethnicity constant, holding education constant, married guys with kids at home have higher labor force involvement than guys who have never been married or guys who don't have children under the same roof. And it's kind of interesting, even leave out the marriage part of it, irrespective of your marital status, if you're living in the same home as kids under 18, you do those other controls yeah. and your workforce participation is higher anyhow. <laughs> it, goes up, yeah. it looks like a provider effect. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, so something like that. So while it is extremely difficult to tease out the causality, it is true that family structure serves as a very powerful predictor of workforce participation. I suppose there is a more technical term than collapse, but what we have seen with the change in family structure in the U.S. over the past, let's say just two generations, has meant a dramatic decline in the proportion of prime age guys who are currently married, and also a dramatic decline in the proportion of prime age guys who currently have a child living in the same residence with them. And so all other things being equal, we'd expect less labor force involvement for prime age men because of this. And it looks as if, in part, this is a supply-side phenomenon. Well, not to get us mired in any more controversy than is absolutely necessary, (laughs) but it seems like government benefits are playing some role. Yeah, let's talk about disability. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't gone nearly deep enough. (laughs) Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk talk a little bit about that. Yeah, okay. I believe that one of the reasons that 
Economists have not looked more carefully at the correspondence between the disability benefit archipelago and the army of men no longer in the labor force is because of what we might call the dog dish problem. So if you are from the broadly construed West these days, and you're a well-trained economist, you can utilize a lot of very impressive econometric techniques to slap around a well-behaved data set. And you can find all sorts of cool stuff out of it. I mean, that's, it's really quite wonderful. <laughs> but if you don't have that a data set to work with, then you tend to be a little bit like a dog with a dish and you kind of like look for the dog dish and find a place where there is a well-behaved data set that you can kind of slap around. <laughs> and the problem for this analysis is we don't have the dog dish for it. Uncle Sam forgot to pull together in any sort of central data source the information on all of the different disability programs that American workers might be receiving benefits from or households might be receiving benefits from. It's not just the Social Security Administration's SSDI and SSI. It's veterans' benefits, state-level benefits. It's workman's comp. There are other things as well. And there's no central source to permit one to evaluate the prevalence of individuals in this archipelago. The closest that I could come to is one particular survey that the Census Bureau does, mm -hmm. which uh, talks about many, although not all, government benefit programs. If you look at that for the year 2013, which happened to be the year that I looked at, instead of concluding that 28% of prime age men are receiving government disability benefits as a study for the President's Council of Economic Advisors did back in 2016, you would conclude that 57%, you know, well over half, were receiving at least one benefit from disability programs. And since we know that there's underreporting of almost all government benefits, just the way that there's underreporting of capital gains for rich and you know, high-income people, it's probably higher. Than, it's probably higher than that. Right. So three in five, maybe, maybe more than three in five. And we also know that that's a much higher proportion than it was in previous decades. So does this mean that disability programs are causing the men without work problem? No, I wouldn't say that. I don't think anybody could try to prove that. What it incontestably shows, however, is that disability programs are helping to finance it. They're making possible a way of life, which was not extant two generations earlier. So our misshapen and misbegotten dis approach to disability benefits is certainly involved in the supply side phenomenon, which is part of the men without work conundrum today. Nick, is there data on how many of these men that are on disability 
are actually able-bodied could work? And the question is, if they're not working, what are they doing with their time? Yeah. I can I can tell you what they say they're doing with their time. Yeah. I can't tell you much about their health. The government, through the BLS time use surveys, asks a very wide range of adults about what they do from the moment they wake up until mm. the moment they go to bed and how long they sleep as well. And, and this is for trying to understand how uh, the labor force patterns work, you know, all sorts of other things which are related to this, which could be you know, kind of policy relevant. It traces out self-reported patterns for guys who are of prime working age, civilian, non-institutional men who are neither working nor looking for work who are out of the labor force. When we look at these numbers, and remember, these are all self-reported with all of the pluses and minuses of self-reporting, you find that about a bit over a tenth of these guys are, in effect, full-time students. They're adults who are training to get back into the workforce. A good, a good thing, yeah. Yeah. And their reported time use patterns aren't terribly different from the time use patterns of men who are in the workforce, who are working. When you take that fraction out, it leaves you with what the, I guess, the Brits and the Commonwealth countries call NEET, N-E-E-T, neither employed nor in education and training. Okay. And when you look at the NEETs, it's a pretty dismal picture. Self-reported, almost, you know, basically don't do civil society, mm. almost no worship, almost no volunteering, almost no charitable work. Plenty of time on their hands. You might even say nothing but time on their hands. Very little help around the house with other people. Strikingly little help with household chores. And actually, in recent decades, less and less getting out of the house or less time spent traveling outside of the house, at least. So the prime time investment or allocation is watching. And because the survey is not so good on exactly what you're watching, I'm not even talking about content there. I'm talking about what sorts of devices you're watching. We don't know if it's television, DVDs, iPhones, or whatever. But it turns out to be about 2,100 hours a year of watching. And 2,100 hours a year is like a full-time job. So that part I can tell you about. I'm not convinced that 2,100 hours a year of watching is really good skill training for getting back into the workforce. And I would contrast this with the tens of millions of people known as mothers who have left <laughs> the workforce and go back into the workforce. Sure. No matter what their educational attainment level, mothers have skills that employers prize. Mm. They know how to show up on time. They know being reliable is important. You know, moms don't get sick days off. I think this partly helps to explain why we've had such different patterns with the snapback to work for women and for men after the Great Recession. Overall, our prime age uh, work rate 
is back to just barely pre-Great Recession levels now. But for women 25 to 54, it's higher than it was. And for men, it isn't yet back to where it was. Okay. And I, I think what I just described may somehow partly be related to that. I mean, to me, that's pretty shocking, especially when in taken with con in conjunction with the sort of statistic you give about the opioids. Uh, you say that nearly half of these non-working men are taking pain medications on a daily basis. And it sort of creates a, a portrait of a life that to me looks, I mean, it, it looks pretty tragic for a lot of these men. And I was wondering if, if we have any other data that sort of sheds light on these men's mm -hmm. emotional status, what their social stability is, what... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. Well, so the fact that I cited or the um, assertion that I cited in the article is not a finding that I came up with. It's a finding that the, uh, the late Alan Krieger of uh, Princeton came across in analyzing some of the data on not in labor force men. When he was describing pain medication, it wasn't all opioids. It wasn't all prescription medications. I mean, there were over-the-counter things as well. Mm. But what he was describing and trying to illuminate, I think, was a world in which men, and he also found this for women as well, not as prevalent, maybe not even as acute, but for women as well, where there's either physical or metaphysical or psychic pain. And I mean, it's not unconnected to suffering. And of right. course, all of this relates directly to the work that Princeton's Anne Case and Angus Deaton have done on describing and identifying this awful surge in what they call the deaths of despair. They're looking mainly at Anglos, at non-Hispanic whites mainly at less educated Anglos, mainly at middle-aged, less educated Anglos. But they, they identify this rise in deaths from suicide and from cirrhosis and from poisonings from drugs. And it's, uh, it is all too real. I would say that the to me, as a researcher, one of the scandalous things about this is how long it took for anybody, I mean, bless Anne and Angus for being the ones, but how long it took for anybody to recognize a trend which could be seen in the data going back to the 1990s. It took almost two decades for researchers to identify this. I would say that that's a cautionary because it may indicate how out of touch our own think tank and university bubble is from people that I'm describing in this work here. Right. And I just want to take us back to the beginning of the conversation real briefly because right, this crisis, it sounds like, is not just a crisis of the American economy or the American political order. It's a crisis for millions and millions of men. Is that fair to say that these people are, are living, many of them, lives of, of desperation? And that's what this data sort of reveals. Well, certainly I think I could be confident saying that there's an enormous amount of wasted human potential in being a, a long-term asylum seeker out of the U.S. workforce. The psychic costs and are 
probably not only borne by the men themselves, sure, but by their families and their communities and you know people who they matter to. It's really a remarkable thing that this crisis could not only continue but build for decades without attracting much attention in academia or in think tank land or in Washington, D.C., among the policymakers who, for whom these people are presumably constituents. And Nick, just wanted to ask you about a final effect you talk about in your piece, which again, I think is another problem that was kind of below the surface and all of a sudden we realized it was an issue, was mass incarceration and mm. felonization. Mm -hmm. You write in your piece that over one in eight adult men in the civilian non-institutional population has a felony in his background, and the ratio is probably higher for prime age men today. Obviously, if you have a felony, it's more difficult to get work. And you say it's particularly bad for, for black men and the less educated. Should you talk a little bit about that as a, sure. as a factor here? A few years ago, I wrote a book called Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. And I'd gone over some of the things we discussed here today. And when I was finishing up the book, I thought I should have a due diligence chapter about criminality or crime. And so I looked at the statistical abstract of the United States for the chapter about work rates of ex-cons, and there was no such chapter. <laughs> and I looked a little further, and there was no data of any sort in the statistical abstract about this or on the Census Bureau website. Mm -hmm. And there was only the most peremptory information available from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. It turned out that the U.S. government has no idea how many ex-cons we have in our society. Wow. We have an idea of how many people are in prison at any given time. We also have an idea about how many people are on a parole or probation, but not how many people have been sentenced and are no longer in the justice system. So some demographers, fortunately, did a, I think, a really diligent and excellent job of trying to reconstruct the sentenced population in the United States based upon existing available data and life tables and all sorts of cool stuff. <laughs> and they estimated that by 2010, it was 19.5 million living adults. We always talk about mass incarceration, the people who are actually behind bars now. And that's a huge number because it's like 2.3 million. But this is an order of magnitude larger than that. Yeah. And if you continue, if you do the back of the envelope, we're now at a point where there are probably more than 20 million people who have a felony conviction in their background who are not behind bars. And so there's this gigantic, huge population, invisible population, as you were indicating. And because we don't collect, regularly collect information on this enormous American population, we don't know what the work rate is. We don't know what the disability proportion is. We're, all sorts of things we don't know. Although I think we probably can guess that people in this group are disproportionately in the men without work group as well. I'd say one more thing, which I didn't mention earlier. When I did this book, Men Without Work, back in 2016, there was more controversy about whether this is a demand or a supply problem. And some people could say, well, Everstat's wrong. There just isn't enough work. I mean, okay. I mean, that's an argument one can make. 
But you know, time tends to sort some of these questions out. I mean, if we take a look now at the most recent survey on job openings and labor turnover, that survey shows that there are about 7 million unfilled positions in the United States today. The number of unfilled positions in the United States has risen by 5 million since the end of the Great Recession. There are actually more unfilled jobs than men without work in this prime age group who are out of the labor force. Now, of course, we have a matching question. I mean, people have to have the skills to be able to go in jobs. Right. But of those 7 million unfilled jobs, you know, it's not all for jet pilots and hedge fund managers. <laughs> there are millions and millions of unfilled jobs in the restaurant area, in the hoteling area, in, you've got to be strong, but in construction, driving and transport that I don't think even require, or they certainly don't require a higher degree. Mm -hmm. They may not even require a high school degree. So the, I would say, subsequent events have shown how big the supply and institutional side of the problem may be, and I think have qualified the arguments for seeing this as a demand-side problem. Sure. Yeah, I think so. And I just want to highlight something you said earlier, that one of the most scandalous things about all of this data that you've put forward is the fact that nobody's been talking about it. These trends have existed for quite some time, and it's only until fairly recently that it's gotten some attention. You opened your piece in National Affairs by saying that it was a crisis which was more or less invisible for decades, at least until the political earthquake of 2016. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see if you would talk a little bit about how the Trump election played into this, mm. who took note of this crisis mm. as a result of that, and what some of the responses have been. Well, so I can't get real good on electoral analysis and men without work, in part because our modern public opinion polling data almost never ask about your employment status. Right. I don't know why that is. I mean, <laughs> they ask about a lot of things, but they don't ask about that. So, so we don't actually, we don't actually have a lot of survey data saying who the men without work might have preferred as candidates. Mm -hmm. From the, we don't even have information about whether they went to the ballot box or not. From the information I described to you about time use surveys, sounds like they'd be more likely to be, you know, at home playing World of Warcraft than, you know, going out, you know, and to politic and yeah. you know, the precincts. But that's just a surmise on my part. There may have been there may have been a neighborhood effect for people who were not men without work, but lived in proximity to men without work, or were aware of this problem up close and personal, that wasn't being widely discussed in polite political circles, let's put it that way. If I take a look at the trends in wealth generation in the United States from, let's say, 19... 89 to the present, and I take a look at work rate data over that same period, we see more and more wealth, I mean, it's a tremendous success, being generated in our economy at the same time that there's less work, especially for guys. 
Some people would say that that is just like a classic framing for a populist storm. It doesn't mean that the storm is ever going to break. You know, <laughs> some storms never break. You know, some revolutions never happen. And it also doesn't tell you whether, if there were something that happened, whether it would be in 08, 12, 16, 24, whenever. But in retrospect, looking back on this, maybe it makes a little bit more sense. So to kind of conclude this here, at the end of your piece, you mentioned some potential policy ideas, whether it's uh, more vocational training, improving K-12 education system, reforming disability programs mm -hmm. to focus on work. But you also kind of tease out the idea that we might just need a great American awakening yeah. again. It's, it's a metaphysical problem. So is this a policy problem or a metaphysical problem we're dealing with here? Well, I mean... If we're in a policy shop, we have to say it's a policy shop. <laughs> there you right? go. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we're doing policy research, we have to look for the levers and tools and buttons that we can press and then come up with a relatively honest estimate of the impact that our policies might have. Right. And so, of course, we can do things in the policy realm, but we might be well served to advertise modestly about what impacts we think we can have. If there were revolution in mentality hmm. in the United States, or all sorts of other things might suddenly be possible that are impossible now. But I would not want to recommend establishing a department of, a re of religious awakening, <laughs> because I remember the great Irving Kristol, and I remember the law of unintended consequences. Sure, and absolutely. I think that would be even more terrifying than living in a Puritan New England. <laughs> if, if there was one policy, you say, either the Trump administration or if we have a Democratic administration next year, should pursue right then and there to help this problem, at least on the margins, what would you say that would be? Can I say two? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, please. An obvious one is to reform our awful disability insurance system. It was everything was all done with the best of intentions all along the way. And we now have this awful contraption that incentivizes helplessness and, dis and dependence so that we have long-termers who f fall into disability land in their 30s and while away their time until they're 62 and get the lowest possible social security pension. <laughs> I mean, it's just penurious and full of misery. It might be more expensive to have a work-first principle in disability insurance, but it's something which we might want to seriously consider paying for as citizens because of all of the positive spillovers that it might have. So that's the other thing, which is just this isn't you know policy analysis language. The, the other thing that's just wrong is ignoring the 20 million plus invisible ex-cons in, mm. in our society. Maybe one or two million people could be ignored among friends, but we're dealing with orders of magnitude greater than yeah. that now. Yeah. And there's just no excuse, whatever, for not wanting to know about the circumstances of our citizens. We can't really have effective evidence-based policies for reentry and reintegration 
unless we got the evidence. And there just is no good reason for continuing to ignore this because the demography of sentencing is going to be that this population is going to be growing for years and maybe for decades, no matter what is done in criminal justice policy. There is no excuse for not wanting to know more about this very vulnerable part of our population. So if policymakers, their hands are, it sounds like, a little bit tied, because a lot of this is ultimately a question of the disposition of workers, their the way they think about work, the way they think about family, the way they think about themselves, and policymakers are, are limited in their capacity to directly influence that. Well, they can do they can do some things. They should do everything they can. I mean, okay. yeah, yeah. They should, they should do everything. But it they sounds can. like it was largely not doing the wrong things as we have been doing. Well, I mean, it seems quite misbegotten that our educational system should ignore what used to be called vocational training yeah. As yeah. A, in the ways that it does. College may not be for everybody, but everybody should be able to leave school with a skill, with a marketable skill. And there's been a big failure, not everywhere, but in a lot of K through 12 public education. I mean, that there's a lot of work that can be done not in Washington, but at the local level. I mean, with subsidiarity, you might call it. Uh, yes. So I, I, certainly, I certainly don't mean to imply that this is hopeless or beyond redress. That's not what I think at all. I think we need to be realistic about how we approach this and what tools we use to approach this and what is beyond the realm at the moment of the government or maybe maybe should be beyond the realm of the government. Okay. Well, Nick, we always end each podcast with a quick kind of lightning round of whether things are overrated or underrated. So uh -oh. we're just going to throw something out there and then let's know what you think. They're all overrated, aren't they? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> often. Maybe. And some are related to this discussion, some are not. Yeah, but uh, okay. first one is universal basic income. Is that overrated or underrated? That's a problem or a cure? It's I would say it's a cure. I would say it's a cure. Way overrated as a cure. Way underrated as a problem. <laughs> okay, so how about something like the Works Progress Administration, bringing a similar kind of policy approach back? The law of unintended consequences suggests it's overrated. <laughs> Nick, I know you do a lot on also Asian security, North Korea. The current approach of using diplomatic negotiations with Kim Jong-un, is that overrated or underrated right now? Since it's not going on, I guess it's rated just about perfect <laughs> at the moment. Right. That's revealing. Okay, yeah. All right. And one last final one, Trump's trade war with China. Is this going to help American workers? Trade wars don't solve jobs problems. The Chinese situation may be a unique one-off in which the U.S. for security reasons wishes to rethink the whole question of supply chains. But one does not create jobs through trade wars. The manufacturing sector in the United States is not going to be magically recreated through protectionist trade policies. Fair enough. Very succinctly said. Okay. Thanks so much, Nick, for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a lot of fun for me. Absolutely. If you'd like to read Dr. Eberschatz's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.